arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The day of the dedication of the aqueduct was without a doubt the high point of my grandfather's life. A crowd of 30 to 40,000 Los Angelinos had gathered at the base of the spillway. There was a formal program, but once the water spilled down the cascade, the formal program was abandoned because thousands of people rushed with their tin cups to drink the water. When the water came cascading down there, Mulholland, who, who was really exhausted at the time, gave what I think is the most concise dedication speech in history. He unfurled an American flag, he turned to the water, and he said, there it is, take it. With the approaching dance and Aubrey's playing the piano, McKenna is feeling better. But Nico Morrow is planning to face down McKenna and change the future. Death lurks in the air. We begin the final episode of Time Portal Alpha with the future hanging in the balance back in 1913. Time Portal Alpha by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 16, Above the Jawbone Canyon, California Aqueduct, March 10th, 1913. A machine for moving atoms. McKenna, Rasputin, and McGrath entered the schooner through the nose cone. The schooner reality panels showed darkness had descended upon the Jarbone Canyon and the cement planet monolith. McKenna paused to think about Jen's poster, Time is a Gift. Then he moved over with Rasputin and McGrath in front of the wide black and white readout screen. A map of the aqueduct construction with the mountains and hills against the black background appeared on the screen. Mono Lake to the north and the Owens Lake as well as the river were laced with the invisible but all-powerful dimensional grid. The solid symmetrical grid covered the central California landscape for a length of 275 miles and 60 miles across. The genius of Dr. Nico Morrow had so cleverly created a sealed edge between the bubbled dimensions. Once the inversion layer was released, probably when construction was completed, the burgeoning energy into this dimension would vaporize five years of hard work and planning for the city of Los Angeles and possibly leave a radiation residue that would last for thousands of years. So, he holds the ultimate power, doesn't he? asked McKenna. He can decimate the area at any time. He will only do it, said Rasputin, when it's optimum to destroy our original timeline. My question, said Annie, does he care which new timeline he creates? You mean, does he just wish to ruin our timeline? He'd need a vested interest in this new timeline to do that, said McGrath. McKenna stroked his chin before he spoke. Finding that out could take a lifetime. I wish to postulate that he could release the dimension at any time, said Rasputin. Maybe he just wants to be sure the aqueduct will never be built, said Annie. I agree with that, Annie, said McKenna. Let's see this uranium mover. Right this way, said Rasputin, leading him to a clear rectangular box containing a multitude of dull gold uranium packets 
with individual atoms. Looks impressive, said McKenna. Because it is, replied the confident Rasputin. The intake pump returns the dimensional space back into his grid. With the return comes the slow march of uranium atoms. Why uranium? Rasputin leaned toward McKenna. Uranium atoms will bond in a force that is irreversible and untenable in any attempts by Nico to dislodge them. Will he know what we're doing? asked McKenna. He takes actual measurements, said McGrath. Which is possible, Mark. So we're here under the sword of Damocles. McKenna headed up to Annie's station. We have no choice than to pray he just leaves things in place until he's ready to pounce. We have ten movers, Mark, she said. McGrath and Rasputin will go out this morning. We can have them in place and operational in three days. When will it be completely sealed and filled with the atoms? asked McKenna. Has to be in place for the atoms to be infused, said McGrath. Could take ten days. Any way to approximate Nico's vessel in the Oversea, Annie? asked McKenna. Apparently he's found a way, as he did when the deputies confronted him, to move into the Oversea without being detected. No one ever doubted his genius, said McKenna. It's critical to remember, Mark, said Annie from her console, that if the grid is not completely saturated with uranium atoms, and Nico tries to open the dimension, the implosion could even be greater. Not a pleasant prospect, Annie. What about the cold fusion units? Charging. I should be able to get you out. We just keep getting this massive magnetic buildup every time we burrow outside. We can have turned back to McGrath and Rasputin. You need help with those boxes? Mark, you and Steuben need to stay in proximity of the schooner and be watching for Nico and his Section 5 friends. I understand. Keep your device with you, said Annie. McKenna said nothing as Annie just stared at him. Tell him, Annie. Tell me what? Annie bit her lower lip. Aubrey Wilson. What about her? Asked McKenna. Aubrey Wilson was supposed to die last month in the construction of the jawbone siphon. McKenna's stomach twisted and he placed his hands on the table. What? Mark, your presence in this timeline right here has now prevented her death. Thought you said you couldn't find anything on her. Her first name is Aubrey. She was listed as Jane. Her presence on the timeline ended in the pipe accident. Kenna stared out the window. Then I've already changed things. You have. Before dawn, McKenna ventured out of the bunkhouse and stood on a rock overhang. The massive cement factory, already humming before daybreak, had smoke spewing into the clear sky. He removed his device. Annie, status. Units are still down and charging. Status of uranium insert. Rasputin and Will are on their way to the southeast corner, Mount Wilson. They should be able to set up the device in the rocks this afternoon. The second device will be placed in San Francisco Canyon to the west, hopefully by sunset. So we'll be pulsing atoms from both southern corners by tonight. And then back to the schooner. If I could transport them out there without alerting Nico, I'd do it. Tomorrow they'll be in Mammoth Lake and then in the Owens Valley. By the end of the week, we should be fully operational and pulsing uranium atoms from all areas. And Nico will not monitor this? He could. We have no choice. I just think it's unlikely. In the entrance via the quantum burrowing outside the schooner is 100% secure. Buzz me when San Francisco Canyon is in place.
By the following afternoon, McKenna held Aubrey's hand in a different way as they climbed the canyon hill. He squinted in the late afternoon sun. By now, Rasputin and McGrath would be heading north. His heart beat as he thought about Nico possibly discovering the sabotage. Mark, I must say you're unusually quiet this evening. McKenna smiled. Just a very long day, Aubrey. She kissed him and her eyes perked up. My sheet music came today from Altadena with 10 days to spare. And you're not going to tell me the songs, are you? You may not know them. They're only a couple of years old if you haven't kept up with popular music. And, he said with her eyes close to hers, let me call you sweetheart, she said. McKenna sang the words, I'm in love with you. Her mouth opened wide. Oh, you, that's my line. But you really do know the song. Yes, I know the song. Let me hear you whisper that you love me too. Keep the love light growing in your eyes so true. You do know it, she said, grabbing his hands. How about by the light of the silvery moon? By the light of the silvery moon. She laughed so hard she almost fell back. Well, you know some of it. I'll play the rest of the dance. We have to tune that old piano. Okay, one more. How about Moonlight Bay? That's an older one. I always liked it. Don't worry, we'll dance to that too. Cookie can play it. She made a funny face and rolled her eyes. Or at least he thinks he can. You need to open your own place, Aubrey. Sell sheet music, pianos, and give lessons. You haven't heard me play yet. I know what I like. I'm sure you do, Mr. McKenna. And if you want to know the truth, I thought about opening some kind of music shop. You can be my salesman. You couldn't afford me. She straightened his collar. Who says I'm going to pay you? Chapter 17, Monolith Cement Plant, Tehachapi, California, March 21st, 1913, Friday night. The Jawbone Siphon Dance. McKenna studied the aqueduct and grid depiction on his device. He wore a striped shirt and suspenders. Like a thermometer rising, the intricate grid had portions of its dimensional linear pattern following land contours like solid gold tubes but the incremental advance required time to seal Nico's manufactured dimension from imploding across the desert. Rasputin claimed sealing the grid with uranium atoms was an irrefutable scientific fact. Magnetic blocks are demagnetizing, said Annie on the speaker. Thank you, Annie. Steuben, in a plain white shirt and clean brown trousers, moved next to McKenna. Mark, after ten days, Nico would have detected Rasputin's atoms. His ego won't allow him to question a challenge, said McKenna, still studying the screen. Then he turned to Steuben. What about Beth, Georgies? Steuben stroked his dark goatee. McGrath and Rasputin were all over the trail up to Owens Lake. They talked to people and hired a tracker after Cam's death. Nothing. You think she's dead? He asked. Andy called out from the station. My guess is she's going to incite the people in Owens Valley. She just thinks it's unjust. I don't give a damn what she thinks, snapped McKenna. We're talking about how our timeline existed. Maybe she's dead. If she is dead, it's her own fault, he said. And she isn't going to just find Nico. Damn this whole thing. It's all Nico's doing. Can she disrupt the atom infusion? Asked Annie. I don't see how, said Steuben. You have to be able to generate a field to penetrate the bubble Nico created. Then it's 
hit or miss, said Annie. Right. We have to find Nico, said McKenna. He will try to destroy this aqueduct. Is he even here, or just an ultra image? Unknown. To his right, McGrath, in a brown shirt and white Stetson, stepped ahead of Rasputin, who was dressed in white. Looks like the gunslingers have arrived. We'd better be armed, said McGrath, because Nico and whoever is left obviously have weapons. I'm working on a device to scan the desert, said Rasputin. It may not show Nico right away, but should be able to home in on whoever's out there. That would give us a leg up, said Steuben. I never heard of a cowboy dressed in white, Rasputin. I must point out that I'm not a dancer. This should be very interesting, said McKenna. My heart and mind will be trying to visualize constructing the scanner. You can return to the schooner once the fusion units demagnetize and charge. Maybe we'll let Annie out of her cage. Thank you, said Annie on the channel. Our only mission now is getting Nico. The fiddlers stood atop a sealed pipe, producing a spunky song as McKenna did his best to dance with Aubrey. She wore a flowing country-style red dress and her blonde hair was pinned up perfectly. Sweat poured down his forehead as he lifted her into the air and the song ended. He had earlier introduced her to McGrath and Rasputin. A red-haired floozy in a cleavage bulging dance hall dress hung on McGrath's shoulder. He lifted a beer mug into the air and kissed the woman. Rasputin sat at a table across the room with a pencil and notebook. Steuben spoke with the bartender. Your friend Rasputin must be an engineer, said Aubrey, handing McKenna a cold beer. Thank you, said McKenna, taking a sip. How did I do? Oh, you're working on it. Well, I'll have to talk to my teacher. She smiled and kissed him. I am sure she'll be very accommodating. When do you take the stage, Miss Wilson? After the next dance. This one will be slower, Mr. McKenna. He nestled her in his arms. Cookie at the piano began the prelude. McKenna grinned. That's let me call you sweetheart, she said. They began dancing, and he looked into her eyes as they alternated lines. I'm in love with you. Let me hear you whisper that you love me too. I do, said McKenna. Keep the love light glowing in your eyes so true. They both sang. Keep the love light glowing in your eyes so true. Let me call you sweetheart. I'm in love with you. He held her hand and they crossed over to the piano. Nice job, Cookie. Was it? Cookie stood and bowed to McKenna as they all laughed. Aubrey slid onto the bench. She adjusted the blue cover by the light of the silvery moon. Then she opened the music and her fingers hit the keys. McKenna's eyes lit up and he mulled the words as he tapped his foot. That's just wonderful. Thank you. She said as the song began, By the light of the silvery moon, I want to spoon my honey and I'll croon love's tune. Honey moon, keep a shining in June. Your silvery beams will bring love's dreams. We'll be cuddling soon by the light of the silvery moon. McKenna spotted Rasputin still at the table, but McGrath and the girl were gone. Steuben spoke with three men by the makeshift bar. McKenna smiled again at Aubrey, who returned the smile as her fingers flew about the keys. Aubrey grinned and McKenna gave her the thumbs up sign. Her curly blonde hair shimmered and shook as she moved her fingers about the keys. McKenna absorbed the musical incantations from the woman he loved deeply. Falling in love with Aubrey had caused him to overlook the obvious fact that he could compromise the mission. 
would need to take her back to the original timeline. The assemblage of miners, engineers, and marginal women and townsfolk applauded. Aubrey stood and bowed as her face beamed. Again, she sat on the bench and placed the sheet music for Casey Jones in the holder. Here's the song that will get everyone dancing, she said. Words by Lawrence Siebert and song by Eddie Newton. You'll recognize it right away. When she began the opening refrain, the crowd applauded a second time. Fergie, his eyes wide, emerged from the back room and traipsed up to McKenna as Aubrey and Cookie continued with Casey Jones. You better come back here, Mark. McKenna tapped his foot. What's the matter, Fergie? We're having a good time. Come with me now. Fergie led him out to the opposite side of the warehouse. The piano and the singing tapered off. Near the outside door, under a single bulb, two men stood behind Steuben, sprawled on his stomach. The back of his stark white shirt was blotched in dark red blood, and a purple rose had been tossed under the dirt. Georgie's! Georgie's! A distraught McKenna bent over and listened for a heartbeat. Rasputin rushed over from the other door. Everyone, stay back! shouted Rasputin as he bent over Steuben's body. This man is a doctor, cried McKenna. He's alive, said Rasputin, listening for a heartbeat. He whispered to McKenna, I need antibiotics and medical instruments. The schooner. Call Annie and we'll borrow them out. I'll check for a doctor. He's lingering near death. I need to operate now. I'll be right back. McKenna pushed open the door and stepped onto the porch overhang. He buzzed Annie as he moved down the stairs into the cooler air. Mark, how's the dance? Annie. Georgie's been shot. Rasputin needs antibiotics. Oh, God. After a pause, she spoke again. I can borrow them outside on the hill. You'll have to wait till morning. If I conventionally set them to your location, Nico would spot them at once. Probably why he shot Georgie's. Is he conscious? McKenna paced in front of the stairs. We can't wait. He's dying, Annie. Mark, there's no way you can cross the desert to that hill at night. What if we move the schooner? No way, unless you want Nico to know our location. The same goes for your stepping through a conventional shield. Stand by. Prepare antibiotics for conventional transport to this location. Yes, sir. I'm going back inside the plant. Wait for my orders. Let me know about Georgie's. McKenna out. McKenna slipped the device in his pants pocket. He opened the warehouse door, but in the light ahead, a little man with a fiery red beard moved towards Steuben. We need to probe the wound. Not without sterilization, you won't, shouted Rasputin. Are you mad? Where did you get your credentials? Harvard Medical, you fool, snapped Rasputin. You don't contaminate a wound with bacteria. How dare you? We'll bring him to the hospital at Cinco. I would not move him, said McKenna. Who the hell are you? I am a steward, Jonathan Dice, and I work for Dr. Taylor at Cinco. What are your medical qualifications? You listen to me, Dice. You're not moving him, yelled McKenna. Aubrey entered the hallway. She stared at Steuben and raised her hands to her mouth. Oh, God! McKenna focused on Dice and moved forward. Dice, he's my friend. You let me handle this. Well, I've had enough of you, said Dice. John, Stu, keep this man back. Two men appeared with rifles and stood between McKenna and Steuben's fallen form. Get men to bring this man to one of the bunkhouses. 
McKenna whispered in Rasputin's ear, Where the hell's McGrath? I don't know, said Rasputin. If they move Steuben, he won't survive. McKenna grabbed the antibiotics, dropped conventionally near the bunkhouse by Annie. Nico will find us for sure. If he's looking, Mark. After he handed the packet to Rasputin, McKenna lit another oil lamp and, fearing McGrath was at risk, moved back outside. For half an hour, he searched all the bunkhouses and tents. Then he returned to the bunkhouse where Steuben lingered between life and death. Next to a burning oil lamp, Rasputin leaned forward from a chair in the bunkhouse. The two men raised their rifles from across the room to the next window. He watched the pasty Steuben breathing sporadically under the white sheets. Rasputin looked up. Rasputin, what happened? Did you give him the antibiotics? Yes, but that fool, Dice, he probed the wound while you were looking for Will. He what? They don't understand sterilization and infection. Plus, he punctured blood vessels and shoved the slug deeper in with additional contamination. They were going to shoot me if I interfered again. McKenna grabbed his arm. Will he make it? I'm just not sure. They're going to move him to the Cinco Hospital in the morning. This is not good. McKenna grinded his teeth as he stared at Steuben's erratic breathing. Where's this idiot Dice now? I don't know that either, said Rasputin. He can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. Where's Will? McKenna sensed his own fatigue. He must have spent the night with that showgirl. I can't find him. Bottom line, Mark, there's nothing we can do unless I get Steuben back on the schooner. McKenna inhaled and half closed his eyes. Mark, get some rest and I'll stay here with Georgie's. Wait, let's just get Steuben onto the schooner and then take evasive action. The problem with that, Mark, is this. If Nico was alerted to our presence, he could be waiting for an opportunity to destroy the schooner. I'd strongly advise to stand down and pray that the antibiotics bring Steuben out of this. Go back to the warehouse and get some rest. I'll be right here. McKenna nodded and reluctantly left the bunkhouse. He entered the plant warehouse and shuffled in the dim light. Aubrey was nestled asleep next to the piano bench. McKenna sat down next to her, put his arm around her, and she opened her sleepy eyes. Steuben. Not good, said McKenna. She snuggled her fluffy hair against his shoulder. I'm sorry. Me too. McKenna opened his itchy eyes. Bright sun rays cut like slazer beams across the warehouse. He slipped away from Aubrey and walked in the cold air across the dirt. Rasputin stood silhouetted on the porch as sunlight crept over the desert. His hair was scattered, his white suit wrinkled and splattered with dry blood. His blue eyes were laced with blood vessels. He's dead. They buried him three hours ago on that hill over there. Dice killed him is what happened. They're all covering the whole thing up until they find Nico. McKenna saw the fresh dirt scraped along the slope. He turned as Aubrey stepped under the porch and hugged him. I like Steuben. I'm sorry, Mark. McKenna nervously placed his hands on his forehead. I'm worried about you traveling back to the siphon, Aubrey. I'll be with ten people and Cookie, Mark. I have to find McGrath, said McKenna, inhaling. He's still not back. Cookie, carrying a rifle, walked outside. Any word on who gunned down Steuben? A coward, said McKenna. On the way back to the jawbone, keep your rifles at the ready, Cookie. 
Always do, he said, snapping the rifle with the handle. We need to get JT down here, he said to Cookie. I think he's at the Elizabeth Tunnel. Use the telephone or send somebody down here and make sure everyone is armed at the siphon. McKenna looked into Aubrey's eyes and held her hands. I need to make sure my friend McGrath is all right. What can I do, Mark? She asked. Get back to the jawbone safely. McKenna nodded and then hugged her. He peered the scraggly trees and bushes dotting the desert, framed by the furrowed chocolate mountains beyond. Nico was no doubt aware of their location now, and with the antibiotic drop, he would ratchet up his attack. Two hours later, McGrath wandered out of a small wood structure up the hill behind the plant. At least McGrath had not been shot like Steuben. McGrath, in his open brown shirt, pulled his pants high and secured them with a rope or belt. Will! Mark! McKenna started forward as a resonating buzz filled the air, rising and falling like a Doppler crescendo. McKenna cupped his hand to the side of his mouth. What's that noise? I don't know. McKenna crunched his brows and turned back to the cement plant down the hill. A perforated metallic ball, twisting and turning, hovered over McGrath. McGrath stopped moving as if he were stuck. A brilliant red slazer beam from the sphere, wide and straight, produced a shrill pitch as it surrounded McGrath's body. McKenna drew his gun and fired several times, missing the sphere. McGrath, still trapped inside the red glow, had no expression on his face, as if he were a cardboard cutout. The outline of his form soon brightened and then faded slowly into pink and then he was gone. The beam retracted and the round metallic ball spun almost instantaneously into the morning sky, leaving a vapor trail behind. McKenna fell to his knees and opened his eyes to a pink granule pyramid on the desert floor. Then he raised his arms to the sky. Is this how you do it, Nico? Let me watch my friends die, one by one? McKenna spread his arms and yelled at the sky until his throat hurt. His voice echoed back to the plant and through the hills. You bastard! For several minutes he lay on his knees, overlooking the spot in the desert where McGrath had been vaporized. If Nico had wanted McKenna dead, he could have easily directed the spherical drone weapon out of the sky. It was a slow torture, designed to make McKenna be on constant guard for the drone while suffering the demise of his team. The sadistic Nico lie in the shadows, ready to spring like a mountain lion from the Tehachapi Hills and to annihilate six years of gargantuan effort and expenditure called the Los Angeles Aqueduct. Then McKenna's original timeline would vanish like the sun burning fog rising from the countryside. His device buzzed several times over the next few minutes before he answered. Rasputin told me about George's and you said you were looking for Will. Mark, are you all right? asked Annie in a shaky voice. McGrath is dead. She spoke after a period of silence. Nico sent somebody down here to kill or injure one of us, so we'd have to open up a direct shield. The chess maker made his move. The schooner is in a new location. Where's Rasputin? asked McKenna. On his way to the jawbone. Get him back inside the schooner immediately. Yes, sir. It was a weaponized, spherical drone with the ability to vaporize. Poor Will. I'll call you when Rasputin is aboard the schooner. McKenna looked at McGrath's body granules. His anger at Nico and sadness at Will's untimely death merged into an odd determination to kill Nico. 
He started back toward the cement plant. Then he turned and realized he needed to bury the granules. He returned to the site of the Slazer attack and began digging the desert dirt with his own hands. When the hole was almost two feet deep, he removed his boot. He very gently plowed the dirt behind the pink granules and into the hole. There was no dust or residue rising. Very carefully he filled in the hole and with his thumb he drew a cross through the exposed dirt. Again, McKenna sat down with his head bowed. He didn't move until he heard Rasputin's voice on the device several minutes later. Mark! Rasputin, are you on the schooner? Yes, I think you should come aboard. What is the status of the uranium dump? Asked McKenna as he stood, his eyes focused on the cross in the sand. Seventy-five percent, said Annie. It may take another week to seal the grid. We don't have another week. That should be evident by now, growled McKenna. I have to warn you, Mark, that your life is in jeopardy. He could have sent that drone after me, and he didn't. What about the scanner? Where's Nico? Chapter 18. The Jawbone Siphon. California Aqueduct. March 22, 1913. Showdown at Red Rock Canyon. On Saturday at midday, J.T. Williams met McKenna by the wood-slatted workhouses along the completed Jawbone Siphon. The aqueduct straightened out on level ground before rising like a giant roller coaster ride to the top of the dirt in the scrub brush canyon. McKenna listened to JT, advising him that Nico Morrow must have left the area after shooting Steuben. Along the ground, the linear rust pattern evidenced itself at regular intervals toward the hill, haunting McKenna. Where's your friend McGrath? He left the dance with a showgirl. She went back to Mojave and she left him asleep just before dawn in the barn. Now he ain't in there. McKenna had a ready answer. He'll show up, JT. He always does. No sign of violence. McKenna kept thinking about the fine pink granules that were once Will McGrath's body. Were there other Slazer drones ready to descend on the plant or the jawbone? Is there a warrant out on Nico Morrow for an accessory to murder of Georgie Steuben? That's what I want to talk to you about, and this comes from Sacramento. Even though the chief doesn't know about it, they want what happened at the dance to go away. The man is guilty. We can't afford bad press for this aqueduct. The project is near completion. McKenna kicked the ground. There's a mass murderer on the loose, damn it. You know that, and I know that, but I have my job to do. Kenna stepped up to him. Then I go out and I track Nico down myself. <laughs> You're free to do what you want, Mark. But remember, this man is deadly. McKenna nodded. JT, I need you to help me. What do you want me to do? Have someone watch Aubrey. We'll take care of it. JT shook his hand and left with three other men on the horses. McKenna's device buzzed. He snuck the device behind one of the huts and called the schooner. Mark, said Annie in a low-keyed voice. I've located Nico's ship by playing back the data the computers collected. Where is he? Northeast of the jawbone. I'm trying to localize it. I'm going after him. Two things. Wait until I've located the exact spot. I'm going to kill him. Mark, when I brought Rasputin on board, the power consumption froze the magnetic interlock. 
Rasputin is demagnetizing now. Pinpoint Nikos' ship and have Rasputin boost the uranium atom flow. I won't leave to find Nico until you know his exact location. In the kitchen, Cookie produced a huge horse-faced grimace. Sorry about Steuben, Mark. I liked him. Me too, Cookie. Who is this Morrow? asked Cookie. McKenna paused and looked into Cookie's dark eyes. A man who has killed many, many people. Does Williams know about him? He sure does, said Aubrey. He has photographs of Dr. Morrow. McKenna lifted a picture of Nico. Be on the lookout. I will, I will, said Cookie as he stood. Dinner at five, Aubrey. I'll be back in a moment. Aubrey watched Cookie cross the mess hall and then turned to McKenna. Mark, how did he even find Steuben? He targeted Steuben, Aubrey, no doubt about it. I'm worried about you. Maybe you should head down to Los Angeles, Mark. He held her shoulders. I have to track him down. No, Mark, please. I, I don't want to lose you. McKenna turned and held her. He spoke slowly. He isn't stopped. He'll kill again, and he'll destroy everything. Let Williams handle it. I'm sorry, Aubrey. That man killed my friends. I won't rest till his shadow is taken off the earth. Outside, McKenna grew increasingly nervous because the project was so near to completion. He paced along the tents. Nico lurked in the oversea, or maybe he wandered into the countryside, ready to activate his dimensional grid and vaporize Mulholland's project to bring water to Los Angeles. The device buzzed. Mark, said Annie. Rasputin has something. Go. Mark, we're trying to out-techno ourselves. It's much simpler than that. We need to put a conventional communications device into an ambush area to draw him out. I understand. McKenna moved along the buildings now. For a second he thought about Aubrey, but she would try and talk him out of heading north. Find an area away from observers. Exactly. Stay off the new roads. We can't pinpoint the location of a ship, said Annie, but we can place a device along the trail to Owens Valley and the intake away from the aqueduct itself. I'll get your coordinates wherever you go and we'll send out a zoozer in the conventional way. I'll saddle up right now, McKenna told him. I'll ride at least ten miles from the monolith plant and set the trap. Buzz me when you're going, Mark. Wish me luck, Rasputin. This is for all the apples. With three rifles strapped to his horse and several ammunition belts, McKenna rode east of the jawbone siphon. For several hours, he brought his horse down the spreading plain of twisted Joshua trees and toward odd rock formations that resembled a layered cake with eroded vertical columns that must have been part of some ancient ocean. The blue sky was laced with thin, sweeping clouds high above the valley. He buzzed the schooner and dismounted near the rock overhang. His heart thumped as he walked. I'm here at Red Rock Canyon. Got it, Mark said Annie. A few minutes later, a zoozer appeared in the grass into the dirt on his right. McKenna knew events were now set in motion. Nico would become aware that a Zusa channel had been opened to the schooner. He placed his boot in the stirrup and swung himself into the smooth leather saddle. Then he followed the trail to the top of the layered rock ledge. 
He led the horse out of sight and tied the reins to a scrawny tree. Then he stacked the rifles and ammunition at the base of the upper rocks. He held the rifle balanced on his forearm and the rock as he panned the valley in the direction of the jawbone siphon far to the south. Killing Nico would assure that the uranium atoms would seal the dimensional grid forever. Almost an hour later, as he rested his chin on his gloves, he heard a buzz. The afternoon sun reflected off another perforated spherical metal slazer drone that hovered less than 50 feet above the rocks. A dark opening in the air over the desert expanded, and a singular platform with a white balustrade appeared in a golden flash. Nico, in a black suit, black shirt, and black tie, sat in an elevated chair. His voice boomed into the canyon. I'm disappointed in you, Mark, thinking I would be so foolish to fall for your attempt at skullduggery. An ultra image or the real Dr. Nico Moro? Good to see you in reality, Mark. Why, Nico, why? Why indeed? Nico stood and placed his hands on the balustrade as he leaned forward. You will be forced to witness the end when it comes. I'm not watching your theatrics. Such verb! You killed my friends, said McKenna in a low voice. The platform moved out of the overseer and the dimensional hole closed, but the Slazer drone kept circling like a bird of prey over McKenna. In the afternoon sun, the platform slowly settled onto the desert floor. Nico placed a dark rim hat on his head and walked toward the rocks. Getting nervous, Mark? McKenna watched the drone circle overhead. Get that thing out of here! Is it going to fire at you or not? He raised his right hand and unleashed his own slaser embedded in the arm in place of his hand. McKenna jumped back when the dirt around him spit into the air. Nico laughed. <laughs> it's just you and me, Mark, one on one. Murderer. At will, you ordered the deaths of my friends. They were in my way. Nico slowed and looked up with a surly grin. You can shoot your bullets, Mark, but your little sweetheart won't fare very well. McKenna lowered the gun and stood upright as the Slazer drone encircled him again. He looked upward as he spoke. What the hell are you talking about? Oh, I didn't tell you? Aubrey is visiting with us. You're a liar, yelled McKenna, racing forward. Nico shot up the dirt again with the Slazer drone. McKenna leaped back. Oh, that is only the beginning. Try calling your ship and ask them about their oxygen levels. Liar. Oh, so distrusting. McKenna used the device. Andy, what's your status? Mark, Mark, we have real problems here. Oxygen levels are dropping. Mark, I can't move the ship. All magnetic interlocks seized up said Rasputin in the background. What have you done to that schooner, Nico? If you think I'm going to let you have a base to single-handedly attack me, Mark, let's just say they will have a much short lifespan. Again, McKenna raised the rifle. I'll kill you. No, you won't, Nico called out as he wagged his finger. If you want to see your honey again, then you will throw down your weapon now. You don't have her. Maybe not. But do you want to risk your precious Aubrey dying a painful death? McKenna grit his teeth and held his weapon. Where is she? 
Come with me onto my platform, Mark. Return to my ship. No. Can't have picked up the device. Annie, can you open the Oversea? We're losing power and air, Mark. She screamed as Nico laughed. <laughs> Let them go. McKenna spun toward Nico. And now you're going to kill the rest of my people like you killed Cam and McGrath. They got in the way. So you can just destroy the timeline, you mentally unhinged goon. Oh, I've looked ahead at the timeline, my old friend, Mark. One thing will stay in place. I don't care about your theories, Morrow. Nico's voice became steady and his eyes intense. The aqueduct. Should I not destroy it, it will become subject to a dynamite attack in the 1920s. Mulholland will come up here himself. And the one revving up the populace behind the scenes, thanks to you, will be Beth Daniels. Let them finish this project, Nico. Sorry, Mark. You put in a valiant effort, and I have my insurance policy. What do you mean insurance policy? March 13, 1928. Mulholland said it and took responsibility for something that wasn't his fault. Fasten it on me, he said. If there was an error of any judgment, human judgment, I was the human. You're insane, Nico. It was an ancient landslide. You see, I have maneuvered them to build additional storage of that dam right on loose material. They didn't have the technology to see it. Hundreds will die if I don't destroy this aqueduct. Shut up. You kill my people. Annie's choking became silent. Then he heard Rasputin whisper, Put him on the iron oxide line. The iron oxide line, Mark. Why? What did he say? Yelled Nico. His voice was weak. Just do it, Mark. Get away from the line. McKenna nodded. He dropped the gun and started on foot down the trail. Where are you going, Mark? As McKenna rounded the ledge, he walked slowly toward the flustered Nico. You lose, Nico. McKenna checked the thin, rusty iron oxide trail as it crossed around ten feet in front of Nico. Don't worry, Mark. You'll live long enough to see the annihilation of this aqueduct as I wipe away the world in the future that you knew so well. Your country will be just another unremarkable piece of real estate on the planet. Then he laughed loud enough to echo off the rock. <laughs> Nico took a few steps forward. You don't deserve to live, said McKenna, backing up slowly. You are in no position to threaten me. Nico took a few steps forward. He was within inches of the iron oxide line. I can kill you here and now. You won't kill me, Nico, because you can't stomach not being able to see my pain at your success. Silence! Now come with me back to my ship. Nico removed a handheld weapon with a long, wide silver barrel. This weapon will vaporize your body parts one by one, the same way I will torture and kill Aubrey Jane Wilson. McKenna, his emotions surging, rushed Nico. He smashed his right fist into Nico's cheek. Nico dropped the gun and then grabbed McKenna by the shoulders and wrestled with him over the iron oxide trail. McKenna then hit the larger man with a series of pummeling punches. Then he kicked Nico in the stomach, and the larger man collapsed to the dirt. McKenna backed against the rocks as Nico staggered to his feet 
and straddled the iron oxide line. Nico lifted his weapon with both hands. Now, Rasputin, now, said McKenna into the Zuza. Ground rumbled slightly like an earthquake as Nico stood square on the desert floor above the iron oxide trail. He stuck to the ground when he attempted to move back. What have you done? screamed Nico. The iron oxide line glowed brightly in both directions. Another portion of the grid, heightened white with a reddish linear border, crossed over the inner grid and traversed the valley floor like mercury, moving up a thermometer. This perfect line, an incomprehensible surface of hidden dimensions, evidenced itself below Nico Moro. Rasputin had maneuvered the inversion layer precisely to prevent the entire energy inside the grid from vaporizing the area. Above, the sun hit the billowing top of massive, darkened thunderheads rising over the canyon. What is this? What are you doing, McKenna? He shouted like a voice out of hell as he looked down. Watching your demise, Nico! A gargantuan force drew Nico back and he became suspended above the dimensional beam in a widening rift in the soil. A solid bronze-colored barrier capped either end of the rift. As his body sank, Nico grabbed the edge of the loosening, jagged desert soil. Warming, tornadic winds swirled upward, blowing back McKenna's hair as the fissure shook violently. Nico clutched the soil edge with his fingers and fought to hold on. Help me, Mark! Help me, I beg of you! Screamed Nico, his fingers clamped into the soil. Mark! Mark! You'll get no quarter from me, Nico! shouted McKenna from the rocks. Nico's fingers were slowly dragged out of sight. The overseer opened again and connected like a magnet. With a loud crack, the grid sucked the platform with the balustrade into the rising whirlwind. The platform spun like a top for a short time before flipping into the morass. McKenna rolled toward the rocks as the massive pewter vessel itself was drawn outward from the overseer and stretched as if it were entering a black hole. The sheer size of the vessel blocked the sun. The spherical drone disappeared. The ship tore into the rift and vanished into the abyss. Fast-moving dark clouds then spiraled above and in the desert sky above Red Rock Canyon as the ground rolled like a strong earthquake. The bright pulsing energy collapsed in slow motion. The dull bronzed remnant of uranium atoms pulsed and then joined together, leaving a rift in the desert floor. And then, the sunlight of a March afternoon spread beautifully across the quiescent desert. McKenna scooped up the device. Annie! When she didn't answer, he called again. Annie! Annie! Mark, said Rasputin in a low voice. Inside, the schooner temperature is 127 degrees. But I have good news for you, my friend Mark. The uranium... Atomic conjunction has sealed the dimension from our reality. The uranium is at a hundred percent. Nico is gone. And so is the grid. I have to get you out. You can't, Mark. You'll have to live live out your life in this time period. I'm sorry, Rasputin. Don't be. We saved the timeline. All is well. McKenna heard him fall and hit the floor. Then the signal went flat. He tried calling the schooner a dozen times that afternoon until the sun hovered in the west. The schooner with Rasputin and Andy 
would be trapped in the Obersee forever. McKenna sat in the dirt, his arms wrapped around his propped-up knees. A scalloped trench that could have been mistaken for an earthquake fall, now the only remnant of the dimensional grid. The grid, like his connection to his crew, existed in some unseen place void of time and space. Only a series of memories he would carry inside of his head for the rest of his life. Nico Moro was gone. The aqueduct was intact, and the water would soon flow to Los Angeles. Epilogue. Opening of the Los Angeles Aqueduct. Newhall Spillway, Newhall Pass, November 5th, 1913. There it is, take it. McKenna held his arm around Aubrey in the back seat of a valet 40. Aubrey cradled Joshua, who had just celebrated his second month on the planet. Josh had sprouted her curly blonde hair in McKenna's nose, although McKenna claimed that was subject to change as the baby matured. How much did you pay for this automobile, John? Aubrey asked the gray-haired John as he navigated the bumpy dirt road up to the Newhall Pass, where the water from Owens Valley would soon be released this very day. Oh, John paid a bundle, said Sarah. Eighteen hundred U.S. dollars I paid, added John as he shifted. Forty horsepower. I can't believe we'd travel all the way from San Pedro in a single morning, said Aubrey. My pleasure. You two have worked for Bill Mulholland, bringing water to Los Angeles. Everything will change now. Well, you're silent, Sam, this morning, Aubrey whispered to McKenna. You're thinking about Steuben and the others. I am, Mrs. McKenna. Then he snapped out of his sadness. John is right, and he ought to know. He's bringing electricity to the city, and everything will change now. Several cities in the San Fernando Valley had their street lights last night, lit in honor of the water coming to the city, said Sarah. Soon it will be commonplace, said John. McKenna smiled at Aubrey and looked down at the baby. What will he be? What will he be? How about President of the United States? asked Sarah. I like it, said McKenna, and they all laughed. John had a deep belly laugh. <laughs> President McKenna. Well, you better clear it with Taft first. Maybe it will be a bull moose, said Sarah. Well, Teddy should never promise to leave the presidency, said John. Taft is no Roosevelt. John shifted and they passed rows of automobiles parked behind telephone poles. Both McKenna and Aubrey had dressed for the occasion, he in his tweed suit and vest, and she in a teal button dress and matching hat. McKenna removed his outer jacket. Ahead, the crowd gathered by the hundreds in front of the sweeping concrete spillway to the top of the Newhall Pass. McKenna realized at this important moment how close they had all come to having Nico Morrow annihilate the aqueduct and history itself. And then, with sadness, he thought back to his crew and how they never deserved such an awful fate. Aubrey squeezed his hand. It's a new day, Mark. At least Nico died in Mexico. Uh, so the story goes, he said. I was reading a letter in a book from Jefferson last night, said McKenna. Oh, and what did old Tom say? Oh, he was quite blunt. Think I can apply it in a gentler way after what happened up north last winter. Very succinctly, he said, in June of 1813, that the earth belongs to the living, not to the dead. That's the only way it can be. I think that's good advice, Mark, 
It's the only way we make progress and enjoy life. Exactly. I knew there was a reason I linked up with you. Yes, indeedy, she said as Joshua made almost an adult sound. He agrees. Thousands of automobiles, exclaimed Sarah. McKenna smiled and looked at his son. Cars, Joshy, cars. John pulled next to a Charmer's 36. Look, Sarah, like the car they gave Cobb in Napa Joy two years ago. You're not thinking of getting one of those, are you, John? Not unless I manage a ball club. <laughs> They all stepped out of the car, and McKenna caught sight of the spillway. Hundreds of people were already along the edges, and a band was playing in the background. I read the chief is arriving at high noon, said McKenna. That man made it happen. He lifted Joshua into his arms, and Aubrey walked around in place. All the big shots are here today, said John. Thank you, John, said McKenna. John produces belly laugh. Oh, oh, I mean the big, big shots. Promptly at noon, someone struck up the band. McKenna rocked Joshua. He caught sight of Bill Mulholland in his Sunday clothes, walking along with dignitaries toward the reviewing stand. Bill Mulholland, I saw him up at the jawbone. You did? You never told me that, said Aubrey. I never saw him at the jawbone. Well, maybe he wasn't hungry, said McKenna, switching the baby to his other shoulder. Oh, you. My God, said John, that's Harrison Gray Otis, publisher of the Times. The white-haired Otis, with an alabaster goatee, moved behind a woman in a ruffled lace-collared dress and a felt-brimmed hat. Bill Mulholland sat in the far seat. This is really an historic moment, Aubrey, said McKenna. All from trips up to the Owens Valley in 04. You make it sound like you were there, sweetie. Well, maybe I was, he said, making a face at her. Aubrey lips smiled at him. Somehow this remarkable achievement had been saved by his friends, the unseen heroes. Congressman Stevens spoke about what McKenna already knew, about the importance of having water brought to the Los Angeles basin. The lady in the ruffled collar dress, Ellen Beach Yaw, produced a melodic rendition before the president of the Chamber of Commerce had a few words to impart to the crowd. Between more band pieces, the former California governor spoke. Then Mulholland stood after the band had started playing and somebody shouted out, The man who built the aqueduct! Mulholland walked over and without notes began speaking. McKenna heard snippets of Mulholland's address. You have come here today to ask us to render an account of our stewardship. And we have come ready to do it. If the project fails, we are to blame. We took the responsibility for failure and willingly and gladly have done the best we could. If there is a father of the aqueduct, it is the man who went out and found the supply, who made the preliminary plans and who turned the project over to the city. Former Mayor Fred Eaton, the pioneer of the project. He planned it. We simply put together the bricks in the mortar. This rude platform is an altar, and we are on it here consecrating this water supply, dedicating this aqueduct to you and your children and your children's children for all time. Mulholland panned the crowd for a few moments. That's all. 
He shuffled back to his chair as the crowd screamed approval. McKenna smiled at Aubrey, holding the baby. What are you looking at, Mr. McKenna? McKenna shook his head. Both of you? She nestled her hair as she always did against his shoulder while holding Joshua. That's Hanson up there by the intake, said Aubrey. McKenna could not stop smiling. This is so great! What an achievement! The band stopped and Mulholland again stood, and this time to open the gates atop Newhall. The crowd ignited in a wild, anticipatory frenzy as Mulholland stretched out the red, white, and blue American flag. Atop the intake, they turned the valves, and Mulholland's voice boomed out. There it is! Take it! It was 1.10 p.m., November 5, 1913, and the cascade was unleashed, and water from the Sierra Nevada mountains gushed down the step spillway toward the San Fernando Valley. The crowd's cheering was overshadowed by the sound of crashing water. McKenna kissed Arbor and gazed into her green eyes. They both looked down at Joshua, nestled in her arms. Then they locked eyes as she softly spoke. Time is a present, Mark. Take it. You're still hanging in there, you will have gotten a pretty clear audio version of the ceremony and water flowing into L.A. in 1913. I hope that rendition imparts the importance of bringing the water to the city. McKenna and Aubrey are husband and wife and have a son, and they too are witnesses to Mulholland's remarks and the gushing water down the spillway. I felt compelled to mention what we know about the underpinnings of the St. Francis Dam that were not known in the 1920s. Yet Mulholland, not knowing the true nature of the dam, took full responsibility as the chief superintendent. Today people would spin, bring in the speechwriters, and disappear. Bill Mulholland was not only a remarkable man, but a decent man, a man of courage and integrity. Next time we get a little less serious with Cron Man, mega human good guy. Lots of action and animated characters and a serious plot with the man with enhanced powers as the only hope of stopping the plot. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Thanks for listening to Time Portal Alpha. See you next time for Cron Man, mega human good guy. I think I see an alien spacecraft. Wow, wow. it is an alien spacecraft. They really do exist. my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.